For March 13th, 2017, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 454. Snafu. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Uh, The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we're talking about the things we love. Uh, Usually movies, TVs, music, books, uh, games, things like this. But today, uh, talking a little bit uh, about the culture. Now, I'm I'm sure you've seen, because you live on the internet, the uh, BBC uh, Korean Correspondence video. And not Korean Correspondence, Korea Correspondence. Uh, video uh, where his children interrupt and and uh, this got us talking um, all the the kind of crazy shenanigans in that in that video which is either a, a light-hearted lovable family romp uh, either a kind of kids say the darndest things sort of video or else a, uh, a, a sobering reminder of uh, all the uh, multitudinous and uh, hyperdimensional forms of oppression that continue to plague our, <laughs> our society to uh, to this day. Uh, we, we, we're not going to rehash everything about the video, but it, it started us talking about uh, incidents like this, uh, the internet response to them, the kind of the phenomenon of things going wrong, kind of in public public embarrassments. Uh, you know, there was a, a, a very public one where the wrong Oscar film uh, got uh, announced for best, fic- uh, best picture. Like, you may have seen that on the television or you know, because you live on the internet, uh, you may have seen it 500 times more. Anyway, we'll, we'll dive into this in just a second. First, uh, let me introduce the Overthinking It panel. I'm your host, Matt Rather, coming at you from Los Angeles. We have from Boston, Pete Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hey, Matt, the snow's coming. This might be the last time you ever hear from me. <laughs> <laughs> right. The, no, no. Uh, well, I, you know, you, you built your, your house out of root beer cans. You're that, <laughs> you're that uh, smart little pig that uh, the, the big bad wolf of that nor'easter will not uh, blow your house down. And we have Mark Lee. Hey, Mark, how are you doing? Well, I'm also um, uh, preparing for the impending snowstorm, mostly by bookmarking all of my Mr. Freeze supercuts from Batman and Robin. So chill out. You're not putting me in the cooler. <laughs> Mark Lee comes at us from New York City. All right. Let's 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 start. I don't mean to spend the whole hour on this, but let's start with uh, the video itself, the news correspondent um, with his uh, immaculate suit and tie and his embarrassed grin. Uh, Mark, can you just just explain the plot? Like, what happens in this video that the whole internet has gone crazy over? Sure. So it's BBC News, right? And BBC being, of course, British. And the British newscaster is doing a Skype video call with um, an American man, um, a white American male who's in his suit. He's at his home office. He's a map in the background. There's a bookshelf. It looks like the sort of place that, you know, a learned scholar would be talking about the events of the day, which is the um, the dismissal of South Korean President Park Geun-hye from office. It's a big uh, international event, and it's a very serious topic. And, uh, you know, the, the newscaster throws to the correspondent in South Korea and as he's starting to speak, uh, his toddler child just opens the door, saunters in. I think that's the best word. Jauntily saunters in with amazing swagger um, and followed by uh, followed by her younger child in one of those rolling type of things. Uh, when I was talking to Pete about this earlier, it was as if Krang uh, was walking in, uh, a baby Krang 
was coming in, perhaps Quatu, um, <laughs> to, to liven up the situation. Um, the newscaster is trying to hold it together, uh, like still looking at the camera, uh, puts his hand backwards, pushes the, the toddler, the older toddler back, and then the mom uh, barges into the room. We find out later it's the mom. There was much uh, questioning on the internet whether that was the nanny or some other sort of domestic worker. Um, she scrambles into the room on her hands and knees. I think she's trying to get stay out of the shot. Apparently later she's also found out she's coming in for the bathroom and trying to hold her pants up. Um, drags the kids out of the shot and then slams slams the door. Uh, all while the the, uh, the talking head is uh, just uh, mortified and embarrassed and uh, eventually he pulls it back together but it's amazing it's really worth a watch if you haven't seen it it livens up your day and uh and just imagine yourself walking into work like the toddler just uh just with the utmost of swagger yeah the 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 most admirable person in that video is the toddler who is totally cool about everything right like it's like oh here's a door that's ajar what's going on in here oh dad's looking at the computer let's check this out oh i got a shepherd's crook hand in my face pushing me back all right let's play with these books um you know the books that have been set out on the bed to make it look uh to make it look um, uh, very official. Like here, here's the thing. Like kids, kids are. You never work with animals and kids because they undermine. They have no investment in the kind of the the structures of solemnity that uh, adults you know, erect around themselves to make themselves seem important, to make themselves seem uh, uh, consequential, and and um, like the kids don't. Uh, the kids just don't care. They they DGAF as the kids themselves today uh, say. Um, and and mom like panicked. Mom got into the panic mode of of dealing with the crisis. Dad got into the the deer in the headlights uh, mode, and mom got into uh, mom got into the panic mode. And and it's I, if you think of like a counterfactual, the whole thing could have been dispensed with a lot more simply if mom had been able to uh, pull her pants up calmly, walk in. Pick up toddler, push baby out, close the door behind her. But like mom was like scrambling so hard in in the the panic that that she was in, you know that uh, it, it's like a, a Three Stooges routine. It just becomes a, yeah. a clown car. While we're also playing the counterfactual, the other thing that could have happened is that the dad, rather than trying to like you know stare at the camera and hold composure and say I apologize, I apologize, um, he could have turned around, basically you know told the BBC to hold on for a second. You know, uh, shepherd the kids out of the room while, you know, the BBC cuts back to the other human being that they have that they can speak the English language and fill airtime while the talking head uh, deals with the situation and then bring it back after all that has been taken care of. Um, to their credit, though, <laughs> to everyone's credit, I suppose, right? He just stuck with it and they held the camera on him because they knew something amazing was unfolding. Uh, but he could have put an end to that in a different way if he wanted yeah. to. Well, yeah, thank, thank goodness, right? The, uh, the, we, and the world was left with something just so incredibly beautiful. Um, I don't, Pete, what were, your, what were your thoughts watching it as you, as you saw it? I mean, I thought it was really funny, and, but I think that the thing about it that is most funny is the way that people identify with the desperate sense of panic of parents of young children, 
right? And uh, and I think that was the thing that, that to me was the most funny about it. And that if you don't have the, if that isn't familiar to you, the idea of like, oh, you know what, I'm, I've got a kid walking around and at any moment they might do something that puts themselves desperately in danger, right? And, and as such, I may need to react in like an utter state of, of total panic in ways that I sort of regret uh, or in ways that make me, you know, kind of less dignified of a human being than I was before I had a child, right? Like these, these are sort of facts of parenthood for a lot of people. Maybe not necessarily, I want to speak for everybody universally, but it seemed like most of the people that I've talked to, and my own sort of feeling, I have a lot of, I don't have any kids, but I have a lot of little sisters. I am a brand new uncle twice over. Uh, my my, uh, my latest niece was just born a couple weeks ago. Uh, and yeah, I deal with kids a fair amount, you know, and, uh, and this idea of like the guy's trying to be a really serious adult and then the kid comes in and the mom comes in and all of a sudden there's this like, how am I going to hold it together? Uh, this cut child has kind of robbed me of my adultness. It's that could be either harrowing or, or the familiarity of it, right? Whether, whether the state of affairs is proper or not, it's so familiar that it has to be funny to people who recognize it. Right. I think that was kind of what I laughed at that. And, and the Lord Crank baby was super funny. I love <laughs> I love that. The two kids had a really cool, like contrasting dynamic. I think babies with contrasting dynamics are hilarious as if they, as if they like intuitively understand that one of them needs to be the straight man. Right. Like it's like, the is there, does someone write a birth order book that says like the eldest is Abbott and the youngest is Costello or does it go the other way around? No, no, no that's, right? that's definitely the case. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that yeah, somehow that I am kid, Abbott. My, my younger brother is Costello to my to my Abbott. Um, for sure. Yeah. I mean, all that's yeah. needed for a double act is some sort of some sort of identifiable contrast between the performers. Right? <laughs> and babies figure that out. As they're battling for love and also trying to figure out how to talk or move around, right? I mean, like, like for for babies, yeah. that's a game played for mortal stakes, you know, because yeah. they're 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 they want attention and love and and approval, you know, which is just uh, just a high stakes. I don't know, just sort of a high stakes game. Um, yeah. So so a lot of like okay, so a lot of layers of criticism got to be focused on the people in the video, uh, or I guess dad, dad for not being cooler. Um, my money is on dad was not wearing pants, right? Like <laughs> I love that idea. Yeah. The, the reason that dad didn't stand up and like there there was a great. Uh, I'll link it up in the show notes. There was a great. Um, uh, little uh, play-by-play of the video done by a writer named Ben Thompson who has a, a tech analysis uh, business. He's a business analyst for technology stuff. Uh, he's independent and, and writes a blog called Stratechery. Um, he wrote a, a non-technical post on Medium about like what happens, uh, about what happened in, in the video. And he sort of went into what these like, uh, Korean expert sort of hits are like, you know, doing, doing this, like you don't get paid for them, uh, if you're appearing as an expert, unless you have like a long-term contract with the, the network. So you do it for prestige. The guy had clearly dressed up for the occasion. Like it's, it becomes apparent on your 50th or 60th watching that it's being done in their bedroom and that the flat surface, uh, uh, you know, camera right, frame left, camera right, is the bed that has the books stacked on it. So he's gone, he's like, play, he's done a like super dress up make believe sort of uh, fantasy backdrop, you know, mise en scene for his Skype interview on the BBC. And uh, there's been this, hu- you know, this huge investment in, 
in status in making it uh making it solemn and and things like this and my guess is that uh that he dressed from the waist up for the uh uh for the interview so he couldn't stand and that that panic uh that kind of like deer in the headlights quality that he gets is because he couldn't he couldn't stand up um now in in the uh, commentary, uh, some people just uh, off the cuff called the the woman who rushes in the nanny, um, and then some other people said they were racist, uh, and then some other people said those people were sexist uh, because you know mom is doing they think mom is just doing childcare and not like I don't know running a law firm or something like that, uh, or you know there was a lot of uh, uh, think pieces and counter think pieces um, about. About the domestic, uh, about the the you know uh, uh, inequitable split of domestic labor and things like that, um, guys. Let me throw this all. Uh, let me let me throw this to you. Uh, are we all terrible, oppressive people? <laughs> uh, I mean, everybody can do better. Right? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, sounds like we've solved. <laughs> all social problems. I, I don't want to say that it's not racist to assume that the Asian woman is a nanny rather than a mom, but you know, like fine. <laughs> but I think, I think the thing that, I think the thing that, that gets to me about, about it other than like, I, cause I had that feeling too. I was like, well, okay. When I saw it, I said, okay, is that a nanny or a mom? Because where does the desperation come from? Right. Is it a desperation of her losing her job? Uh, or is it a desperation of her? Like, this is the way that she has to deal with her children because they overextend human like children overextend the human capacity of adults to care for them on like a weekly basis. Right. And so it's oh, like, on like normal, an hourly yeah. basis. Right. Yeah. And like 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 being forcefully pulling on the child uh, is is just a result of having tested through trial and error the amount of force that the child can take. Right. Like as and like having to do this all the time. Right. And thus like not really worrying in your own home in particular, even if you're on TV. Uh, how like how it appears if you know the reality of it, and actually that's the big thing, right? And maybe maybe that's maybe that's the big thing is that this was a private this this kind of moment happens a lot, right? In people working from home, yes. people on conference calls, and, and a baby is there, and the baby requires care. One of my favorite streamers uh, on on uh, video game streamers on Twitch and YouTube video guys is uh, the Magic Gathering player Paul Chion, who frequently plays with one of his uh, with his two children in the room with him uh, and uh, and often like either playing or yelling at him or like wanting to be taken care of. Right. And like there's a fair amount of like sass talk back and forth. And there's like, you know, you don't always play with the baby whenever the baby always wants to be played with. Right. Like the baby doesn't get everything they want all the time. That's just not how it works. Right. Uh, sometimes you have to be like, I'm working now and you you play with your toys or you go to your mom or you eat the food. Right. You have to eat the food. You got to be you know, there's other things that happen. But the public expectation of what a parent is going to be doing with a child is is very different from the private expectation of what a parent is going to do with the child, especially a child younger than, say, two and a half. There's another dimension. Right? There's another dimension to it, which was that this was like a, a public performance of an expert role. Right. Right. And and that like the private the the kind of private family sphere, the domestic sphere intruded into uh, into the public role, which is interesting. I mean, the, which is interesting to me primarily from a from a perspective of like an increasingly remote decentralized centralized workforce like working from home or telecommute you know it used to be called telecommuting um various you know various technologically enabled remote work you know uh 
and and the idea that you could do a Skype interview from your your own personal bedroom you know in your house is a new it's a new uh, technologically new thing i mean probably like even just the last five years or something the the broadband speeds have been good enough to be able to do something like this reliably at least in the united states i mean this is this is uh korea where i'm i'm given to understand you know you get uh get you know 50 gigs up and down um for no money, uh, just because you, you happen to live there. Um, that, uh, you know, this, this is something when, when you are, it's akin to, you know, uh, uh, being on a work for being on a conference call when you're working from home and something, you know, something similar happens. I work in a, in a communal workspace, not, uh, at home, but with other people around and, you know, it's not a library atmosphere. So sometimes, you know, something will happen. People bring their dogs in and the dogs will go crazy for some reason. And like, you, you know, you deal with these, you deal with these situations. And, and Don Draper never had to put up with this crap, you know, uh, when, when <laughs> because he was incredibly sexist and, chauvinist and <laughs> created a private space where only he existed, which right. was his professional space. Right. Uh, well, like, yeah, I mean, he created a, a private space even at home within the like the great well of personal <laughs> solitude of <laughs> soul, soul deadening isolation that he lived <laughs> within. But yes, absolutely. There like he had a stringently policed barrier between uh, um, and like a, a bright line barrier between home and and work, and it, I, I think it helps if you like commute to another city to uh, to do your job in, um, and especially if you're going to have a bunch of mistresses. Yeah, yeah well, can. that 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 is most convenient. Like it's it, Don Draper, ladies and gentlemen. I can't, I can't <laughs> have a can't have a. Uh, uh, bunch of mistresses yeah so it's it's interesting from that um from that point of view as well uh but but this is not the first i mean this sort of rhymes with the oscars snafu with uh, a lot of a lot of other things that that have happened recently and like you you may you know have had some i mean none of us uh you know pete mark and i have never had anything embarrassing happen to us in our own lives but uh when when we um you know when you sort of look at the internet uh, uh, when you look at the internet you can, you can kind of see this sort of thing happening more and this is like when, when you have cameras everywhere when like I'm carrying you know three cameras like on my person at all times you know and that is that is a, a situation I mean sometimes five cameras if I have the iPad with me you know there that, that's a situation that's unique um, has never existed the, the, the ability to broadcast uh from wherever you happen to be in human history. And there's like, there are upsides and downsides to it. There's definitely, there definitely can be kind of a dark side, uh, to that. Um, but it's, it, what it makes is that what, what happens is that like, not only are these moments uh, captured now, um, sort of moments of things going wrong moments of, of, you know, private humiliation or, or private, uh, panic or something like this. Um, but they're even the public ones can be recapitulated over and over and over and over and over and over again, because of the way the, the, uh, broadcast networks work, right? Like you can imagine a time, 
time before um, the pro- proliferation of cable news, before digital technology, uh, the, pro- the proliferation, I should say, of digital technology, where that Oscar thing would have happened once and you would have never seen video of it again in your life. And like, it, you know, let us never speak of let us never speak of this, uh, never speak of this again. I don't know. Um, do you I mean, what, Mark, do you have a, a sort of favorite example of this? Is it the Warren Beatty one or do you have a, a another one that's happened recently that is your uh, sort of favorite example of the the things going wrong and getting uh, disseminated on the Internet phenomenon? Well, I was less thinking of one specific thing, but I'm thinking more broadly of the phenomena which you're describing, Matt, uh, which is – and I was speaking this to someone else the other day about this this exact thing. But it was less about like things going wrong, but more generally about how the extraordinary has become incredibly ordinary. Um, the example that I had heard a few years ago was that um, uh, if you were really lucky uh, on SportsCenter, like once every uh, once once or twice a year, someone had a VHS camera running at a high school basketball game, and you would see someone uh, nail a buzzer beater shot from the uh, baseline, opposite uh, baseline, uh, and to win the game, right? Uh, that was an extraordinary thing, and once a year you might see that, and, and, and then that you would be lucky. I can go to YouTube today, and I can watch different versions of that happen, or you know, for hours, if not days, upon end, not see the same clip over and over again. Um, uh, related to that, uh, is, you know, other sort of like the moments of joy that this sort of brings into our lives is something. Uh, I don't know why this sticks in mind. Maybe it's because we're talking about Korea. Is, is that they, I think there's like this Korean wedding band or something like that, and this is the one where uh, the female singer is singing "My Way," and then the camera pans slowly to the left of the drummer who's just wailing away on the drums and going completely insane, uh, like twirling the drumsticks. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and just like a look of un, uh, unmitigated glee, like animal on his face, um, just bashing away while the rest of the band is very calmly playing the song my way. And I think all that is to say, like, you know, we are in a world now where, uh, disruptions of, uh, order where, um, you know, w- w- we have a, a plenty of, uh, of examples where, uh, what we expect, uh, the expectations are, are shattered essentially by extraordinary things, and in a weird way, we've come to uh, expect that and have and are able to make that commonplace. Um, that is to say, like you know, I, I, <laughs> that's the first time I've ever seen a newscaster barged in uh, 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 onto his footage with kids in that in that same way. But uh, it, it it is part and parcel with the drummer going crazy with the buzzer beater uh, full court shot at the end. So um, I I see it uh, with this most recent incident as part of that broader phenomenon. So that's sort of uh, my attempt to put all this into context. What do you guys think? That's a really interesting phenomenon. This idea that things things might have been rare before, but they felt super duper rare because nobody ever got to see them. And uh, or like you only got to see the ones that were within certain, I guess, extending your sample size increases apparent prevalence, even if it doesn't increase absolute prevalence. Right. The thing is, is just as common in that respect. Right. But you get to encounter it more often because it, it is filtered out more effectively. Right. And to be clear, well, the, the, the thing being cameras. Right. Mm. And, and in this particular instance, uh, you know, the, the thing being. Putting, pointing a camera at someone speaking on a national or international news program 
right? That thing now uh, can be done in so many different in, 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 in different settings and less controlled settings, um, like someone's bedroom, uh, so that the, the chances of a kid barging in uh, have been increasing exponentially over the years, and it was only a matter of time before before it happened, and uh, it'll happen again too. And I I can't wait. Yeah, and so what? To answer Matt's question, one example that really sticks in my craw, and that I have a, a thought about that's a slight, slightly different tech, but builds on this sort of idea of sort of changing changing the sort of amount of access you have to different sorts of experience. Mariah Carey on New Year's Eve, you guys remember this, right? Yeah, oh, right? yeah. <laughs> Where Mariah Carey, because because there, yes, there's a situation where cameras are catching moments that they wouldn't have otherwise caught, but there also seems to be a situation of mistakes and and errors, right, being uh, broadcast in places where they otherwise might not, or where in the past you would not expect to see them, uh, and maybe the prevalence is higher, maybe it's lower. But as you might remember, Mariah Carey, when she came out and sang on New Year's Eve, you know, she sort of she was that they played the wrong song, and she got kind of snippy, and she sang it really badly i don't remember exactly the sequence of events because it was a few months ago but i remember her being kind of like dismissive and sassy and like later blaming the techs right for for her them not playing a song that she wanted to and her not following through with the performance i mean matt am i getting that more or less right yeah uh that she right exactly that that like there was a counter i don't know there were there were kind of competing narratives of of what had happened and the one i think that carried the day was that mariah carey was a diva and not in the cool like vh1 diva way but in a uh, in a way where she was sort of ungracious and and unwilling to rehearse and uh uh felt like her presence alone enough was was uh, her presence alone was enough and that she didn't have to do her job right by like showing up uh, familiarizing herself with the general tasks that she she was supposed to perform in her role as, you know, New Year's Eve singer and and things like things like yeah. this. Now, one one side theory is that this was partially to promote that maybe she pulled a stunt in order to promote her reality show about being a huge diva that was really annoying to people. Um, I don't know if that was the case. I don't think the world will ever know. But uh, but that's sort of an interesting wrinkle. And and what I would posit is something I had a conversation with Jordan, with Stokes from our from our podcast. Uh, and from our site a long time ago that really stuck with me where we were talking about kind of who the greatest opera singer was right and uh, who the greatest living opera singer was at the time and and i said wasn't it luciano pavarotti isn't that the best opera singer that that there is now and jordan you know being much more familiar with opera than i was told me that well you know he's got the the voice right he has these pipes that nobody else can duplicate as a tenor as a physical specimen he's unsurpassable right and in particularly in this this particular day uh but you know sometimes he brings it and sometimes he doesn't sometimes his voice is a little fragile sometimes he drinks too much right or sometimes he isn't as sort of as steady as a performer as somebody like Placido domingo right like that like maybe if you look over the entire course of their career Placido has done more shows has done greater shows even if he doesn't have pavarotti's pipes and the difference, right, the reason that Pavarotti really stands out is that Pavarotti sang in the age of the compact disc, right? And in the age of the compact disc, you get as many chances as you want to do it perfectly. And the person who is rewarded and also the person that – the performance that becomes the authoritative version of a performance is the performance uh, – is you only have to do it once, and in fact, you maybe you don't even have to do it all at one time, but it all gets put onto one physical object that then gets copied and distributed. 
right? And now Jordan was talking to me about this. This really stuck in my mind. And they think about Celine Dion, right, who is sort of another Whitney Houston, right? Uh, similar sorts of performers who have great vocal virtuosity um, that, that thrived in the CD era because they were able to put something on CD right before or to a greater degree than any of their contemporaries could from a kind of virtuosic pop standpoint. Now, there are other things that made them popular. There are other things that made them good. Certainly, I'm not going to say that neither of them could do good live shows, right? Celine Dion is still doing it in, in Las Vegas in residency. Um, <laughs> but the, but but the point is that if you're looking for sort of the greatest musician, you have to uh, be relative about that with regards to what the medium and experience of music is at the time. And so, you know, in it, not only do you look back and think, well, back in like the 1400s, I wonder what the best singer would have sounded like if we put them on a CD. That's not the point. Right. The point isn't like what they would have been like by the standards of 1996. Right. The point was, what were they like at the standards of the time? And and I think that what we're seeing now is that the standards of the time for performance, for a variety of performance, has has changed. Uh, the reality of it has changed because of the shifting technology, because of the shifting experience of performance in that, you know, we see so much more spontaneous or unplanned performance we see it just in our lives right with all the videos that go around and the way everything's distributed but we still have a lot of people who are performers who have learned performance uh in the old world in the world of of pressed you know of pressed digital media and pressed analog media where you just have to do it perfect once right and furthermore we have expectations we have expectations in the culture and complex relationships with subtext that are based in this idea of you have to do it perfect and you do it once and you repeat it a bunch of times. And maybe this has to do with world wars and how large scale global militaries work and how they affect the culture. Right. The whole sort of transition from like Downton Abbey to a place where everybody wears suspenders or everybody wears belts rather than suspenders. And and, uh, and everybody wears, you know, uh, the same clothes. Right. Because the clothes can be mass produced and repeated. But the idea that like. That that when because when if you put out a product in the era of the CD that had mistakes in it, you were either being deliberately performative in some way or you were screwing up and irresponsible. And so now when we see people like the BBC interviewer, right, put out this BBC interview and it's like, oh, my, you know, the wife is running in to get the kid. If we judge that by the standards that we judged, like Celine Dion on a CD, the, the it's unprofessional right and it and like it's imperfect and thus it's bad like we even even if it's spontaneous we still expect it to be perfect because our expectations for spontaneity are built off of like heavily heavily filtered ideas of what it is and also years and years of kind of faux meta spontaneity right where where performance is sort of framed to look real like the shield right like like shaky cam and michael chiklis is running into the house and it's like oh it's like you're right there it's like it's real it's not real <laughs> it's a tv show right uh like that kind of thing i mean there's this idea that the there's sort of like you can visualize these curves of the sort of degree of expected perfection, right? And that the uh, that the reality of it is changing faster than either people's capacity for it, for doing it, or their understanding of it and how they culturally contextualize what it happens, which leads to like misleading things such as like the guy stiff arming his toddler is like he's hitting her and it's child abuse. Yeah, well, right? cl like, he's clotheslining her. But it's, you know, I mean, yeah. wrestling is fake. Come on, you know. They <laughs> well, but it's, but like in, in real life, that level of touch is not that intense. 
intense for a, a child of that age. But on TV, where you would expect everything to be perfect, right? Like if Ray Romano hit his, you know, hit his kid, right? Like listen to me say it, right? If Ray Romano stiff arms his child, it has to happen in a very specifically choreographed way on Everybody Loves Raymond, or else it's like, ooh, that's uncomfortable, right? But that's because mm. it's not real. Right. Right. And that's, yeah, it's because it's performance and it's perfect and you only have to do it once. Maybe he screws it up six times in various takes in front of the live studio audience or what have you. The, 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 I mean, the piece that, that, mm, some things change and some things don't change, right? Like it's, it's, uh, I, I have an essentially conservative view of human nature, which is that people are people. They've been like this for, you know, since, since the apes starting, started walking upright. And like, you know, we're not going to get better, you know, right? Like we're, we're never going to arrive at the kind of the Gene Roddenberry, uh, we're never going to arrive at the, um, ideal of, of non attachment that Riker and Troy managed to arrive at <laughs> in their in their intimate relationship with one another where it's like oh yeah my 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 imzadi wants to to go off and and you know go down to the planet and and sarge for no reason at all uh yeah no i'm cool i'm cool with that because i'm a 24th century modern uh human or half human half betazoid and i uh you know I, we just don't have we we don't respond to scarcity in the same way we don't respond to like that's this has always struck me as manifestly uh, being crap um and and so some things don't some things don't change and i I often i feel like this is pete's job very very often on the podcast or has been historically to point out when i'm making outlandish claims about how everything is different and pete Pete says wait a minute what you know not everything you know not everything is is uh not everything is is all new um but some things do change right like and so you have the you have a a sort of relatively stable kind of human nature Nature, interacting with some technological changes that that actually are new and sort of produce new things and and have not produced a set of a set of social norms right and and I think that the 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 like the large scale problem there are uh, a few orthogonal large scale problems here and i don 't mean problem in terms of something wrong I mean as in something to solve uh, large scale kind of uh, puzzlers here um, one has to do with what what got brought up before between sort of public and private what is public and what is private the intrusion of essentially surveillance technology into the private sphere and how that can sort of make uh, what is private erupt into the public um, in a way that can be more or less convenient depending on how you want to narrativize it and how you want to kind of put a construction on it. Um, Two is a kind of expectation a kind of expectation of reality, right? Like this is akin to a lot of... uh, a lot of pop concerts now, especially with you know the new generation of divas, you're sort of Taylor Swift at Alias, you're, you're Swift, Lovato, uh, uh, Gomez um, at, at Alia, right? Um, a lot of the concerts, the prepared, like highly rehearsed, highly choreographed, polished to a sheen, um, certainly worth every penny that they charge for the tickets because those, you know, um, those shows are tight. Uh, always include some sort of moment of like, Un, quote unquote unscripted fan interaction where like I don't know Selena Gomez will, will pose for a selfie at the edge of the stage or something like this right and uh, 
And it strikes me that they're like, like ET fingers coming together. There are two worlds meeting at that, right? Like there's the world of the performer, the extraordinarily polished world meeting the spontaneous world. And then there's the world of the audience who uh, the audience member taking the selfie is trying to produce as professional an image as possible, right? Like the point is not to have crappy lighting and crappy focus and crappy composition, right? The point is to have as good as possible a uh, a spontaneous event and so they're they're sort of coming at the problem from from two sides and this sort of expectation of of constructedness versus spontaneity versus sort of off the cuffness or something is another one that um another one that uh that uh, d- obtains here the the third one um the last one that i, w- I want to kind of unfold right now is has to do with the discourse that we have uh around around these things right because what what happens on the internet what happens with sort of mass point casting or sort of mass uh mass communications technologies being in the hands of of individuals and not just like you know corporations or something like that um a a number of things happen you know uh the arab spring happens i suppose but like the the thing that i'm concerned about right now is that this video of the bbc guy could get broadcast into um uh many interpretive communities, right? And all the interpretive communities start talking and all of their discourses get broadcast into many interpretive communities. And and it strikes me that like in a lot of the, you know, and it being the internet, there's, you know, there, there was like, it was a litmus test for how woke you are. Uh, uh, There were various kinds of moral constructions put on it. Um, and, and by the way, like you don't need to sign on to that stuff. Like just cause someone calls you an asshole doesn't mean you're an asshole. Uh, there's your public service announcement from the overthinking it podcast, um, for the day. Uh, but, but there are, um, simultaneous discourses overlapping, the new thing I think is that they're overlapping. Um, that can't even that can't necessarily agree on what the terms of the discourse ought to be, or what what uh, the vision of the good is, or what the kind of the important uh, the important dimensions of the the important outlines of of the debate are. And so there is this sense. I mean, um, there is this sense uh, in like what Pete says of kind of being at sea of not of the the situation developing uh fluidly quickly um in in a way that's faster than you can actually keep up with and uh you you don't know where you are necessarily always in terms of what is public and what is private you don't know where you are necessarily always in terms of what is uh constructed role playing and what is kind of spontaneous human activity whatever that means and you don't necessarily know whom you're addressing when you when you talk about and analyze um, what's going on, and the it's a recipe for a great deal of confusion, I think, uh, and 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 a, a, a great cacophony um, that seems that that is a little troubling because it seems like you know 
it seems like the sort of telos of a great cacophony in society ought to be eventual harmony. But this seems like a great cacophony that is not uh, going where eventual harmony may not ensue, and that's uh, uh, it's a little it's a little troubling um, to have that on such a large scale. I, I would add, I think, to what you're saying, an additional dimension of that these that the mindsets we talk about overlapping mindsets and overlapping discourses that uh, you feel like ought to be reconciled but don't get reconciled or can't or can't be reconciled or it's not even that they can't be reconciled because saying that they can't be reconciled builds in the expectation that they ought to be right and maybe even thinking that they ought to be reconciled is is not really feasible given the way that the discourses interchange with each other and have different rules. You know what? You know what is another great example of that is the the little girl Wall Street statue, right? Where there's like tons huh. of different tons of different overlapping discourses that operate under different rules that are making different sorts of assertions about the statue and there's a lot of like, "Oh man, how do I synthesize all of them into kind of one opinion?" And the the answer is you, you don't right. It's this, you, not even that you can't. Yeah, I mean, just because, run the changes. Run the. Uh, can you explain a little bit about, oh, yeah. about what you're talking about? And just run the yeah. run the changes on what some of the orthogonal discourses of of uh, morality and and uh, uh, social progress are around the statue. Yeah. So so as part of a campaign to uh, encourage businesses to put women on their boards of directors, which has been shown through research to to uh, uh, help manage risk better right like there's there's certain indications that that well certainly there are indications that keeping women out of oversight functions uh is is endemic of other sorts of problems and that including women on boards is is a positive step in a lot of ways both for sort of social justice reasons but also uh just demonstrably it seems to be better for businesses right extrinsically extrinsically is better than monstrously but anyway so this global investment house uh, and i'll i'll leave the name of it off because why why not um uh decided to promote this its its initiative by putting a statue of a little girl in front of the statue of the Wall Street bull in Wall Street uh, as sort of as an overnight guerrilla market, a guerrilla art thing, because the bull originally was overnight guerrilla art by an artist, right, who sort of like left it there and people loved it. So they kept it. Right. And and for the little girl, it's like it's overnight. It's a surprise. It's like Bansky. Uh, yeah, right? I've, I've never thought I'd see a bank go Banksy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then there's a bunch of critiques that come in, right? Which is sort of like, well, have you considered that it's a little girl and not a woman? Like, what does that mean, right? Have you considered that this is a sort of global capitalist organization that's leadership is mostly male, like, and that is that is doing this and is claiming and is sort of claiming to speak with the moral voice of this sort of feminism? As you consider that that's a problem. And then there's like the video of the guy like humping the statue that goes around. It's like, oh, this is awful and heinous and terrible. This dude is terrible. And Yes, he's terrible. <laughs> it's like the spoiler alert, he's terrible, right? But there's this idea of like, oh, but also I'm really excited about the statue. This is a very powerful image. I think this is really cool, right? Like, so there's both the idea that like, I'm, I think that there's the idea that it's a cool statue. It represents a cool idea. And it's an idea that sort of is underrepresented even on its own terms on one end, right? The idea that like, you don't even see a lot of statues of little girls, right? Like as proud figures, as aspirational figures, right? Um, you see them as sort of objects of adoration, but not as sort of objects of pride and action, right? But on the other hand, it's like, well, have you considered that this isn't entirely, uh, is enti- an entirely sort of morally appropriate, right? Um, and it's like, well, how do you synthesize those things? Well, you don't. 
right? I won't even say you can't, because to say that you can't implies that you're just not good enough at it, uh, right, to, to be able to synthesize these things. And I don't think that that's the situation. I mean, you can be, like, really virtuosic with words and figure out ways to synthesize it, but you'll be doing a lot of editorializing, adding a lot of your own opinion, and, and, uh, and like, it'll you'll make it seem so like it sort of poetically matches up, but maybe, you know, you're not really going to be pulling together and encompassing all of these different discursive claims. Like, like the person who's like, well, global capitalism is inherently sexist, and the person who actually is like, is more like, wow, like we really do need more women on boards of directors of, of international corporations, right? Like these two goals are ships in the night, right? Like, like they don't really interact with each other, uh, in, in, in what I would think of as a meaningful way, except as to confound one another, right? And sort of to call the question to one another. And, and the question is, well, is calling the question even the smart thing to do, right? Um, but but the point but the point of all that, and I'll, I'll slow down a little bit. Uh, but the the point of all that is that um, there's still an expectation that there ought to be a perfect answer, that there ought to be a perfect explanation, that there that even the act of commenting on something that's happened in real life ought to be something that you do perfectly one time, and then that one time gets mass produced and everybody gets on board with it, right? Like like a, like a Celine Dion CD, you sing my heart will, will go on one time. And you put it on a CD, and then everybody listens to it. And I'm going to have my hot take about the little girl on Wall Street, and it's going to be perfect, and it's going to be right, and everyone's going to be happy with me, and I'm going to put it everywhere, and it's going to win, right? Like, uh, like I will always love you is a perfect moment, right? With with Whitney Houston, but that's not how it works. Like, like the like the Wall Street bro grinding on the statue is such an imperfect moment. So on that briefly, <laughs> actually, right? I mean, there is this. I condemned it a little more than that. I condemned it a little more than that. But anyway, Mark, by all means, there's a, there's a tendency, I think, to your point, Pete, that there is a there ought the, there's this feeling that there ought to be this perfect uh, explanation, perfect takedown of this horrible Wall Street bro and how uh, how terrible this thing is. And yet, right, uh, you know, there that's impossible, right? Uh, uh, I, Obviously, what that person did, you know, in that moment, incredible moment of stupidity, was incredibly stupid and, and horrendous, and all these things. Um, should that person be defined by, you know, this one uh, terrible moment for the rest of his life? Perhaps, perhaps not. Right? We don't know what's going on with this with this individual. Um, so I think this uh, ties back to uh, our conversation about the BBC video. Right, which is that uh, something unscripted happens, something that uh, that that shatters and defies expectations, um, and uh, it, it seems like. Uh, let me see if I'm interpreting this correctly. We we lack the discursive tools to make perfect sense of it because it's just that's just unattainable. Is that fair to say? Uh, well, yeah, perfect sense, right? Like per perfect sense as an idea is contingent on the art and or and the art, right? I guess uh, the performance. Right. The the moments, the, the depiction, right, whatever you want to call this object that exists, a, a, a perfect sense of it relies on it having a perfection and 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 that we have moved away from the idea of these sorts of moments having a perfection. I mean, even in the past when there was, you know, one, you know, like R.E.M. sang Losing My Religion for its album and it's in the video and that's the version you always hear. Even even every C, every CVS banger sort of exists at a perfect moment. Right. In which it was like, um, you know, every Steve Winwood song exists in its sort of like canonical version from the album and the video and live versions are sort of somewhat lesser. Right. Like you can't have a perfect sense about it. I mean, that's sort of a reverse ontological proof. Right. Sort of the idea that like if a thing if a thing isn't perfect, 
if a, if a thing isn't perfect, then you can't have a per- you can't have a sense you can't have a sense for a thing that is of a greater degree of expression of perfection than the degree of expression of perfection of the thing to which it refers. Right it is would be sort of like the the ontological uh, argument there, I guess. Well, right? Okay, Un- unpack that last piece there. Probably. I mean, I don't think it really holds, but, but the idea is this, right? <laughs> the idea, and Matt Matt's laughing because this is about this is about theology and theosophy and stuff, right? Which is that like there's an old proof of God, and this won't be like a rigorous uh, explanation of that proof, which is basically like God that like I'm going to define God as like the greatest thing that can be conceived of, right? Like that, 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 that God is the greatest thing that can be conceived of, right? And then I'm going to talk about sort of language and representation in language, and I'm going to talk about like representation ideas, right? I'm going to be like, well, I can't come up with like an idea or a language that is like greater than than the than the like the thing that it speaks to, right? Like it always has to be inspired by something. Language always has to come from something or reflect something. There always has to be something to which language is referring, right? And and in that respect, uh, because. Because I can come up with language, or I can make assertions, or I can make sort of philosophical arguments, or I can have thoughts, right, that, that, that speak to this idea of this, this great perfect being, because my idea can't—it's not, it's not reasonable to think of my idea as sort of surpassing anything to which it might refer— Right. My idea being greater than anything in the world. Right. My idea has to come from it. It doesn't like, you know, the the level of perfection of the thing that I'm talking about has to be greater than my ability to talk about it, because the act of me talking about it makes it less great. Right. And as such, therefore, God must exist. Right. Because there has to be something that's greater than my greatest attempt to talk about it. Right. Matt, would you say that's a fair way of explaining it? It's not like 100 percent by the book, but yeah, it's absolutely. uh, I mean, this is. um you know, uh, this this sort of thing is kind of parodied uh, in kind of a slant way in the the knock on uh, the knock on religious people. Uh, God invented man in his own. God created man in his own image, and man, uh, being polite, returned the favor. Right. Right. That, right, uh, right. You know the the idea that our there is a there is a relationship between um, there is a relationship between the tools we have to talk about something and the kind of the conception of of what that of what that thing what the constraints on that thing are are this is like this is actually related to what Leibniz and like best of all possible worlds uh, philosophy yeah. as well right like God could not create something perfect it's a it's an existence of evil argument right like why is there evil God could not create something perfect because then God would be creating God uh, and God is sort of defined in the system as that which cannot be created uh, so God creates the best of God being all good creates the best of all possible uh, worlds not it's a little bit it's it's very you know enlightenment it's very kind of like natural law based right like not um, God can't write the laws the laws are the laws and uh, and you know it gets very interesting because then there's kind of a substrate within which God is constrained by sort of the the natural laws, the best of all possible worlds, you know, being constrained by those those yeah. uh, laws as well. Yeah. Uh, in, in in other words, if you have no word for tomorrow, uh, then then every day is the weekend. <laughs> so so take that framework and way of thinking, and like take God out of it for a second, and put in. The BBC guy, right? <laughs> like put in the BBC guy and his wife and their children, right? And, and you think of think of think of that 
as the sort of the best of all possible worlds, right? Like, like, they, like if this because it's the only one we've got is, is the sort of the other sort of. I always thought of that as sort of the most compelling uh, way of thinking about the best of all possible worlds theory, which is that like, well, it's the world we have, right? And so like, uh, so the idea of thinking about a world that's better than this one is kind of an empty assertion, right? Uh, in, in certain ways. And I don't think that it has a different logical purpose thinking of it that way. It's more poetical than logical. But the point being that if the BBC guy kind of stiff arming his kid and trying desperately to look at the camera while his children are going nuts behind him and his wife is tearing into the room, probably from the bathroom to try to pull them out of the room. Uh, if that's the best of all possible worlds, we can't have a hot take about it. That is more, more perfect, right? On the terms in which it exists, right? In the terms of the BBC, like in that moment, right? In that you can come up with it with a take on it that is more elegant, right? That that is logically more interesting or or like more more compelling as an idea or more normative. Like you can come up with something that you that is greater by some orthogonal trajectory that you set up, right? Like my hot take piece about the BBC guy. Is 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 my generation's letters from a Birmingham jail, and like ends up it's it, that's actually the Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure <laughs> argument, right? That's the Wild Stallions argument that like from Bill and Ted can come a music that creates world peace, whereas like Bill and Ted themselves are not capable of creating world peace, right? But like you can create kind of an orthogonal trajectory that towards some other value, right? Towards something that's that's but in the moment, in the moment of the BBC uh, segments with the with a couple and the parents and the kids, no hot take you come up with is going to be more kind of unified or perfect or 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 solving or reconciling, right, in totality, in totem, all of the different ways in which that thing can exist than the moment itself, right? And then, and even the video clip of the moment, which I guess now we could say, we're really talking more about the video clip of the moment than the moment itself, right. because the moment itself is, is a present to present to imagine and is sort of dropped out of consideration because it can't be observed, right? Um, Although asking them about it is an interesting thing that you could do, right? But that, that's the idea, right? Is that like takes are are either attempts to to try to like strong mis. I guess this comes under the idea that like surpassing is strong misreading, right? Uh, yeah, like, it's but yeah. The, but but that is what what you're talking about is. Uh, it's to your point. Um, a strong misreading in this case is an alternative narrativization that is more compelling than the narrativization offered by the actual the actual thing. But it creates a new thing. Like in so doing, it creates a, a new a new thing. It's a new phenomenon. It's not like a commentary. It's not like a Talmudic uh, uh, exegesis on the uh, on the thing itself. Like this is really a problem of of uh, this is a problem of representation, right? And it's. Uh, uh, it's a, a bit of a sticky wicket um philosophically uh epistemologically like it's it's you know it's tough right like no no take a, a take can be hotter but it it can't be truer uh to to the thing in itself than uh than the uh uh than the thing itself um the thing itself is right um yeah yeah, yeah definitely right uh, and, and i would even say i would even say that like encountering this kind of discourse might actually be confounding people's self-conception of of perfection and like making people make more mistakes maybe 
right? Like the, the idea that nothing is correct or nothing is right and everybody is always spinning everything, the whole sort of, I, I hate to, to quote uh, the great prophet Sarah Palin, but like the gotcha media, right? The idea that so much, <laughs> that so much of like public performance is people looking to recontextualize things that have happened, which is, you know, and then, but that's a whole technology of thought that like all art is reconceptualizing things that have happened or the th- things that people have said. But if that really sinks into your brain, like where's the motivation to get that one perfect take go right where, where is that performance of like i i am a perfect movie star in a perfect moment like presenting the academy award right and and i'm going to do it perfectly is there a sense i maybe that the sort of constant way in which media and participation in media recontextualizes that kind of dulls that performative tradition oh, to the point yeah. where people are making more mistakes than they used to. So so that's why the president of the United States can constantly spew light, lies and falsehoods and get away with it. Oh, well, that explains that's a, that's a, it. That's something else. That's something else. Which I wanted to talk to you about when you talked about the bro, right? Which is that like part of why you can't you, part of why you can't really surpass part of why you can't really make an argument about the bro humping the statue that kind of surpasses or rectifies the bro humping the statue is that merely by reposting the picture of the bro humping the statue right you have reinforced the idea of the bro humping the statue right you can't you can't like post the opposite of it right you can't negate it right like that's yeah, the, i mean frankly right? this was a problem in the in the political election as well because any even right any criticism of a certain presidential candidate fanned the flames you know and and you can't make the fi- like uh however hot your take uh, the hotter your take, your hot take is not going to put out the fire, you know. And right. and if something's on fire, your hot take is not, you know, yeah. uh, <laughs> is is not going to uh, is not going to make the fire burn less hotly. I I want um I mean like maybe we can close on the Oscars because I feel like the Oscars had a lot of these dimensions happening. Um, at the same time, right? There was an accountant backstage uh, Instagramming uh, photos of movie stars. <laughs> exactly, right? right? Exactly. Right? Yep. And, and probably trying to make the most professional, you know, uh, photos of, of movie stars that he could manage with his, you know, whatever uh, phone he had. You had two movie stars on stage performing their public role, at, you know, as the, the, the GD stars of Bonnie and Clyde, for goodness sake right of a classic i mean of of hollywood royalty a classic film um being commemorated on an anniversary you know uh these these storied eminences you know walking among us and then uh you know after all the the clown car stuff with the envelope right uh, Beatty turns to faye dunaway and he wants to have a private moment and she bursts out of the private moment into the public moment by just in the in the confusion and excitement of the 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 instant calling out the name of La La Land, right? Like the, there was a, a sort of public private thing. There was a um, a constructedness spontaneity thing. There was a multiple kind of multiple kind of discourses. Uh, sort of uh sort of thing happening um it was uh really a, it's a a very thick a very kind of thickly textured sort of uh uh moment um that that no no take no take seems hot enough to do justice hot cold lukewarm whatever the take no take seems seems like quite enough um 
seems like quite enough to do justice to it. Like, even like, was it a good thing or a bad thing? Right. Um, and that says uh, more about you than about the thing. Right. Exactly. Well, yeah. That which is fine. And, which is totally fine. You can riff on it. Create your new thing. Right. I'm not saying don't do that, but understand. Maybe it can be helpful to understand what but, it means. Uh, right. Even what is the question? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? Presupposes it's a thing. Right. Mm. So you can't. Th- this is a point akin to something we brought up over a controversial episode of of overthinking it uh, about celebrity phones being hacked. Right. Like you, you can't say it's a good thing or a bad thing without it being a thing. Right. Like the thingness of the thing is a precondition of uh, all hot takes, even those that condemn it as even those that condemn it as bad. And like, is it? I mean, did Moonlight get you know just instrumentally? Did Moonlight get more publicity uh, than it would have otherwise? Did it come to more people's attention um, because of the the snafu? Um, snafu, by the way, is a good acronym for like describing this this sort of situation. Uh, because but but was it better ultimately for moonlight that this bad thing happened to it uh you know um you you actually can make that argument uh but even if your argument is that it's 100% bad, the the precondition of your argument is that the thing has happened you know and that um you sort of can't escape that. There's no, uh, no take is innocent, I guess, um, of, of complicity in the thing that it's a take on, uh, a uh, a little bit. I mean, that, that, that's especially interesting when you consider that like the Oscars, just the Oscars existing is, it requires a great deal of consensus, right? Right. Between a lot of people, right? Like just, cause it's just a statue, right? And even that is just a lump of gold or whatever it's made of. Right. Like, like, and like grave, it's, this is, and again, we, I know we, we've been dipping into, uh, religious thinking a lot, but it's a graven image, right? It's, it's an idol, right? And, and that, and, and the issue with that is that, like, can you, if you imbue the physical image with an essential philosophical quality or an essential normative quality, right? That, and a necessary normative quality, uh, right? You've, you've probably done something false, right? Like, uh, <laughs> like you've probably, you've probably committed some sort of error. Right. If you if you've taken a physical object and necessarily without some sense of contingency or without some sense of of uh, of context. Right. Uh, then then you've probably made an error. Uh, whereas because like the Oscars can only exist as the Oscars if like a certain authority, a discursive authority of people uh, is willing to invest those statues and those events with with that importance. And that's why we have rituals like opening the envelopes. Right. Because the rituals help bridge that gap between the sort of irresolvable uh, necess- the irresolvable failure of the necessariness of things. Right. Like that a thing can never really be truly necessary because you're you're always talking about the thing. Right. Um, And the aspect I mean, again, the the essence of the thing uh, is supersedes the existence of the thing. Right. Of any being or a thing that isn't even a being. Right. But but the the, you know, I'm I'm getting a little bit down the rabbit hole here. Right. But but the idea that like one way that we we deal with this gap that we've been talking about is through ritual and repetition and tradition. And 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 also there's there's a story that we tell ourselves about rituals, that the rituals are necessary, that they're consequential and that they have sort of always been thus or that they have been thus since some important point in time when they were made when they were made thus, um, you know, in in some way. Right. Like the the Eucharist was instituted at a particular 
uh, dinner party, you know, and right. that like, and, and now we have, you know, now we have yeah. the ritual, right? Like the opening, you know, the opening of the, yeah. uh, the opening like of Sally, the Sally Field said, you like me, you really like me. And like that added a celebrity and importance to the best actress Oscar, right? Like, and that story gets shown to us at the beginning of the Oscars every year, yeah. right? Like something, some like acclaim about the mythical origins, the epic mythical origins of the symbol that you're about to watch. Yeah. Right. Like talk about a sort of private, private moment being made public in a, in a, you know, sort of embarrassing way, I suppose. Um, it, it might be time to, uh, it might be time to wrap up our conversation about, uh, these, these sorts of snafus, uh, any hot takes to close the, uh, to close the podcast with. Um, I think that the, the, the rest is silence and flights of angels, <laughs> flights of angels sing thee to. I was thy... going to say that, that the, the president of South Korea being impeached is a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> Put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> I don't know. That, but what, there that, you go. that after, after, you know, uh, accusations of, of massive corruption being, being these allegations being pr- proven, um, that someone should be removed from public office. Uh, you're saying that, that our leaders are, are, uh, accountable to the people, um, whom they represent and there are systems of laws to uh, remove them from office when they are, uh, when they behave in a way that is, uh, grossly immoral. Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, but yet by making that claim, I must, I must in turn repeat the the sim, the the epistemological unit that is corruption, right? Like I can't deny, I can't like, I can't uh, punish ex- corruption out of existence, right? I, I can I can merely set up an orthogonal trajectory wherein Bill and Ted's music and the Wild Stallions will will cause people to rock so vigorously that that our discourse flows along a a perpendicular route and does not so much erase corruption as leave it behind as it moves on to bigger and better things. All right, uh, uh, be, be excellent to each other and party on, dudes. party on, dudes, and please continue to subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve it. Flawless victory. <laughs>